This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force is in the midst of a series of hackathons, but with a slightly different spin than the ones that tend to get used for cybersecurity testing. This year's events are all about finding what's possible when data is shared across organizational lines. Now, one key takeaway so far, the kind of data sharing officials think they need to build future capabilities, well, they're nearly impossible under current laws and policies. Those data restrictions could be a huge barrier to big Pentagon ambitions like the Joint All-Domain Command and Control Project. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the details. The effort is called Bravo. The first hackathon happened in January. The latest wrapped up just last week at three locations, Joint Base Langley-Eustis in Virginia, Patrick Space Force Base in Florida, and Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. In short, the objective is to see what development teams can do to solve real-world use cases in the span of just a week once they're given access to real-world operational data. At two of the bases in the latest hackathon, the teams were allowed to work with classified data. Stuart Wagner is the Chief Digital Transformation Officer for the Department of the Air Force. He says the events are meant to start tackling what he thinks has been a problem for DOD's attempts to foster bottom-up innovation from its workforce. Namely, that the people with ideas very rarely have access to the data they need to show that their solutions can work. If I have a new idea and I'm a, you know, employee at the Department of Defense, probably what I need to do is learn the problem, test solutions, And I'm not going to have any resources yet. That's where I'm going to exist. But if you look at the innovation organizations that exist today, and many have tried to improve this problem, I just don't think they've succeeded yet entirely, is you end up being in a space where you effectively more or less need to know what to build, how to build, how much it costs, and you need to have money. And the problem is when you start with a new idea, you don't know those things. So we created a hackathon series to try to solve that problem. And Bravo costs one week and allows you to use what would otherwise not be approved software in an ATO'd environment on classified operational DOD data. So we're going to get the data. We're going to allow people to bring in packages off the Internet, uh, which we check for viruses, uh, to bring in open source data off the Internet with appropriate licenses, of course, and then In this environment with classified data, we're going to allow them to build emergent capability, demonstrate what's possible in one week of time. Wagner says one of the biggest lessons so far has been how hard it actually is to move classified data around the Department of Defense. In some cases, that's because the technical capability doesn't really exist to move information from system to system. For our hackathon that we ran at Nellis Air Force Base, we sought to collect telemetry data, such as those examples I've just provided. What we found was that the fastest and most reliable data transfer bitrate network in the United States Air Force is the United States Postal Service for classified data. This was actually quite shocking to me. If we're leveraging data that is sent on physical devices and uh, and is then couriered or sent via the mail, I don't know how we're going to develop the capabilities that are being requested and required by the most senior leadership within the Department of Defense. My assertion because of this discovery is that Air Force telemetry largely doesn't even have observe yet in the OODA loop. We cannot even obtain visibility into our systems if I need to make a special request to get the data. Wagner says the other barriers fall into three other buckets that have more to do with policy and culture. 
He says classified information, the kind that by definition the Air Force needs to share very broadly to make concepts like JADC2 work, is hoarded and siloed, and much of it is held in systems that are designated as special access programs. And what happens when you try to combine data from more than one system or classification level? The number of people legally authorized to see it shrinks even further. And if you think about the Air Force, some of the primary systems I think about are the F-22, the F-35, and the F-15 EX Eagle II. Notably, all of these systems are both sensors and shooters. So if I want to produce, say, ABMS, I'm going to need data from these systems, and I'm going to want to join it together. I'm going to need the sensor data. I likely will also want any sort of command and control related data from these systems. I'm going to want to join that together to learn from it to build, say, an AI model of some kind. Each of these systems requires a SAP read-in. And the number of people that have access that actually are read into these programs who are engineers is infinitesimally small. My belief is that the people who would be read into this to, to any of these programs within the Department of Air Force is less than 1%. Wagner says the problem gets even more complicated once you consider that ABMS is just the Air Force's portion of JADC2. The end vision is to have all of the military's sensors and shooters communicate with one another, sharing data in real time. And that vastly expands the number of systems that will need to share classified data with each other. If we expand this now from the Department of Air Force to actually the Department of Defense, now I need read-ins for jets, subs, and satellites. But as I noted, the number of people with read-ins to any one of those is infinitesimally small. So at this point, there's only a few people I think of who would actually have access to all of these programs. And I do wonder who is teaching Secretary of Defense to code. Nobody else has read into these programs. Not, not all of them. Siloing these data makes joint all domain command and control impossible. You cannot build it without joining the data. And so the sapping and compartmentalization policies of our operational data will make JADC2 illegal to scale to our secret operational networks. Today, it's illegal to put this data on our secret network. But 99% of the force operate on the secret network, which means 99% of the force can't participate in JADC2. Wagner says the hackathons are designed to show what's possible when those data barriers are broken down. And he says the first round proved the concept. The initial code isn't necessarily something you'd want to put on a real-world weapon system, since the teams only had a week to work on it, but they did prove out solutions in several specific areas, including, among others, jet sensor visualization and playback, target planning, and automation of some aspects of personnel recovery missions. We show that we can develop capabilities with weapons data in under a week, when the security and data shackles were removed. People built capability, there were 12 teams, one capability is now being leveraged operationally. Just three months later, it's being leveraged operationally. Over half of the projects are, have actually continued development. Not all of the projects will succeed. Our first event had a bunch of projects succeed. This event, we're hoping for more. And systemically, where we want to get to is we want people to build, spend their time building instead of talking. And it's time to talk about ABMS and JADC2. Not as much building. And, uh, and we're learning things by building. There's a bunch of communication and collaboration taking place. But by talking about something while building, you actually uh, perhaps learn a lot more about that topic and uh, find solutions to it. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see 
a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.